Are we recording now? I am recording now. Hi. Hello. Listen, we're back. It has been more than a year since we recorded, and it is 100% Dylan's fault. Uh, no. 100%. No. Absolutely not. It is Jake's fault, and it is Annabelle's fault, and it is my fault. At but Annabelle's f- no longer here. Not that she's dead. She just doesn't live here anymore. Right. She had to move back to Houston. Listen. At the height, we probably had maybe 50 or 60 followers. We'll be lucky if we get back five. Oh, yeah, which is why we have a new system in place. Do we have a new system in place? Yeah, it's called adult responsibility. Well, I mean, I'm in a system for the podcast, but yes, we do have adult responsibilities. Not me, because I'm unemployed, because the world's on fire. That's right. So my adult responsibility is is doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. But no, the new system in place I was talking about was that we are going to continue to do Too Scared to Sleep, but it is going to be on either, and we'll see how it works out as we work, and we'll keep you all updated. Um, But it is either going to be a once a month or once every two week release schedule for this particular podcast. And now that we kind of have our shit together a little bit better, it's going to be either a monthly or bi-weekly basis. And we'll keep you all updated on what we do with that. The other thing is that we are also going to be starting a new podcast, um, which is going to be still me and Jake talking. That one is going to be a weekly podcast. I'm not going to give too much away at the moment, but I will tell you it for anyone who is interested, we are transitioning into a movie podcast. And I will keep you all updated with the information once we get all that going. Uh, we'll probably go ahead and post the first episode on Too Scared to Sleep's page just so you guys can check it out. See if that's going to be your jam. And then check it out at its actual page. But we are not killing Too Scared to Sleep. Uh, we are just taking a lot longer in between episodes, which just gives us a little bit more freedom to work on the topics a little bit better and is a little bit less stress on me with this particular thing i say as i now start another podcast so last year we recorded one episode and it sounded like shit and the sound was horrible and the production was just it was terrible and so we took a break and we were like okay let's just i don't know we just basically didn't decide to do anything and we didn't do anything for it and then over the last couple of months we've been talking about what we want to do and whether we wanted to change the format because there are a lot of paranormal and true crime and conspiracy theory podcasts out there i feel like this the market is kind of saturated yeah absolutely so there was a period of time where we had thought about just you know killing ending it. this podcast just killing it because you know if you've listened to our episodes there are moments where it's like we're not even talking about paranormal or true crime we're talking about movies about you know and we'll talk about production value and casting and all this other stuff and you can tell that that's something that we really enjoy talking about and it's something that we really um that that's a big passion of ours and so we started talking about a different format um when we started you know when we started kicking around getting the podcast back together so most recently let's talk about what happened this year first of all yeah so this has been a wild it's been a wild fucking since june of 2019 to, to june of 2020 um i got divorced i live alone now right dylan doesn't have a roommate anymore. He's got a bunch of roommates. Yeah, but. but I so I had moved out of my parents' house and was living in an apartment with two great roommates and one super shitty roommate. Um, and luckily, I am out of that situation now. But in obviously, that means we moved to a new apartment complex. So in the midst of also a fucking pandemic. Yeah, the um, coronavirus. We're, this is June the first of 2020. So we're on 
what, month two and a half, almost three months now? I'm thinking like three or four. Three months of quarantine? Yeah. At least? So yeah. I have been unemployed for a very long time. Luckily, that unemployment money is coming in pretty nicely right now. Yeah, so um, good for Dylan. But, yeah, so, I mean, there's been just at, been a lot going on, man. It's yeah. been It's been a wild time period. I've been at work the entire time. We were uh, deemed essential, an essential business. And so, apart from... Uh, changing a couple of things like the hours that we worked and two weeks on and one week off working from home and stuff like that. We stayed open the entire time and we're still not out of the pandemic as all of you guys understand and know there are still um, safety precautions in place. And personally, I don't think that we should have lifted such a, such a big part of the quarantine just so early. And I understand why we're doing that because we have businesses that are going to go under and are never going to be able to come back if they don't have some revenue coming in. But at the same time, you know, we still have an increase in number of uh, COVID-19 cases coming up. But what can you do except wear a mask and wash your fucking hands? Yeah. Stop touching your face. And it's especially, I mean, I don't want to spend this whole intro just talking about, you know, the coronavirus or the fucking race war that's happening or any of this oh, shit. Jesus Christ, that just started happening. Um, just because, like, everybody knows, right? Every single person knows. If you don't know, you're living under a rock, which means you're probably not listening to this podcast that you've never heard of. Right. Um, but, I mean, we I don't want to spend this whole thing talking about this. But, I mean, it has been a huge factor in why we haven't gotten together to talk about this, why we haven't actually sat down to record. You know, it's it's been a huge impact on everything. All right, well, let's talk about something that's really interesting. I did get divorced and took a couple of months there where I was just depression eating. Mm-hmm. Right? As one does. As one does. You come home and all that's here is one cat and crippling depression. Yep. So you start eating a lot of Little Caesars pizza and Whataburger and stuff like that. Then yep. I decided, you know what? Fuck this. And back in December, I decided, you know what? I'm going to start to eat better. I'm going to start exercising, get my groove back, that sort of thing. So I did. I have ended up, so far, I've lost 42 pounds. Fuck it up, son. <laughs> since Christmas. Skinny queen. Yeah. And I'm kind of dating somebody now. Ooh. Yes, she's very nice. Her name is Alex. And what's funny is that when we started talking, I had mentioned to her that I had a paranormal and true crime podcast. And she was very interested in that. And so we met up and we had a pretty good first date, but she's not at the same point. She's just barely going through a divorce and so she's got a lot of shit coming up that... I had coming up last year and I worked through because, you know, I'm at a different level than she is or a different point in this whole thing. So um, we've gone back and forth with not talking or talking on a limited basis and not seeing each other as much. And it's working out really well um, because it's more of a natural progression on a, on a relationship. But the exciting part is that because she knew we had a podcast, she has been listening fervently to our episodes and really likes Too Scared to Sleep. And so she was the one <laughs> who convinced me that we needed to get back into it. Um, that was part of it, part of what it was. More than anything, she had suggested a particular topic, which is the topic that I'm going to be talking about. So no matter what happens, this episode is going to be called This One's For You, Alex. Okay. I, that's, I mean, yeah, that's definitely going into the title. Absolutely. Hopefully she doesn't end up being like a serial killer or something. And then you feel weird about having an episode dedicated to her. No, that would be even better. Can you imagine? Like, But what if she murders you? Awesome. What if she murders me? Even better. Jake, where are you going? Just turning the ceiling fan on. It's fucking hot in here. Oh, yeah, you're right. Thank you. Anyway, what better way to gain notoriety than to be murdered? If she was going to murder me, she would have already murdered me. Maybe she's playing the long con. The long con. Oh, my God. That's a long con. Anyway, 
I don't know how much of that is going to make it into the episode, but anyway. I, I'll probably keep it in because I, I mean, it's it's important shit, you know. Yeah. And you know, we have both been through a lot of things. I mean, so I also was doing the whole depression eating thing. I just haven't decided to work out. There's an exercise bike right there. Oh, I know. I'm sitting in front you of you. You can one. come over here and work on that exercise um, bike if you want to. Yeah, you're not allowed I, to get. You're not allowed to put your sweaty ass on my new rowing machine yet. Okay. Well, I won't do that. I have gotten really into fitness. As evidence. I can. Yeah, we're sitting. We, so we're recording in a new room now. We're recording in a spare room that Jake has, and it is plagued with exercise equipment and a couple cool posters. I see a Minecraft poster in here. That's There's from a, when my son was living here. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Badass Batman and yeah, a Fox Jim Mulder. Lee Batman one, and an I Want to Believe. Fox Mulder. Love that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, there's. I mean, there's been a lot happening, you know. I, uh, I went through a breakup and started eating not great. Not feeling super good. I'm kind of coming out of that funk. Redownloaded Tinder, which is uh, it's a hellscape of disappointment. You shouldn't do that. Well, it's not like I can exactly go out to a bar and meet people right now. You don't even drink, do you? I'm 21. I've never seen you drink anything. That's not true. Oh, I just cleaned out my refrigerator and I have some beer that you need to take home to your place. Okay, I'm never going to drink it. Thanks. I'm trying to find beer that I like. So... We'll see if I like it. The answer is beer tastes gross no matter what it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, beer is piss water. Mm-hmm. Uh, fight me on it. But anyway, there's just been a lot going on between all of us, and obviously the world is falling apart. So what better thing to do in the midst of an apocalypse than start back your podcast and start some more? Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing, and cheers. Hello and welcome back to another spectacular episode of Too Scared to Sleep. My name is Dylan, I'm your favorite host, and over here we've got the other guy. What the fuck? (laughs) Favorite host? Yeah, favorite host. You fucking heard me. Whatever. You're the least favorite. Uh, In most aspects of my life. Alright, I'm Jake. We're back after a long hiatus, and we're happy to be back. Yes, incredibly happy, and the hiatus was too long, and we're so sad, we let down all of our loyal fan that's right probably the one person that's going to be listening this episode's for you alex hey (laughs) all right who wants to go first um i don't know i'll go okay all right so um i'm going to be talking about bigfoot and sasquatch which are one in the same wow bigfoot and sasquatch that's right okay the the abominable snowman the yeti the yowie whatever you want to call him Okay, so obviously Bigfoot, Bigfoot, and Sasquatch are prolific. He's he's the most famous cryptid out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody's heard of Bigfoot. There are there are references to Bigfoot going back to every culture on every continent for hundreds of years now, and he's everywhere. He's in paintings and drawings, and you know, across different levels of media. There's books about him. There's movies about him documentaries there's tv shows all about hunting for sasquatch and all that other stuff so he's been around for a very long time and again you know it's a multi-continental sort of thing uh, as far as a cryptid is concerned it's really cool so i'm going to talk about it a little bit you know as far as like different areas of the world and i'm going to start with north america so in north american folklore bigfoot or sasquatch are hairy upright walking ape-like creatures 
that dwell in the wilderness and the only thing they ever leave behind are footprints sometimes you'll have you'll have a uh, someone who will you know post a video or show photos of like you know there's a footprint here there was a tree that was up and then this tree was pushed down like it was nothing you know and it's this big thick tree and it's like you know something with super strength just obviously just pushed it down and that sort of stuff um but we've never had any kind of like uh, confirmed sighting there aren't any skeletons there aren't any bigfoot offspring no one's ever been able to shoot one bring one into captivity bring a carcass in which is just crazy because everything you know i mean Americans are good about taking guns into the wilderness and killing things that they don't necessarily need to kill and bringing them back. Americans are good about that in more places than just the wilderness. That is true. Okay, so depictions often portray them as a missing link between humans and human ancestors or other great apes. They are strongly associated with the Pacific Northwest, particularly Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and Northern California. That's where the biggest concentration as far as North American Sasquatch or Bigfoot are seen. Individuals have claimed to see the creatures have claimed to see creatures like this actually all across North America over the years, dating back to prehistory times. People who claim to have seen it describe Bigfoot as a large, muscular, bipedal, ape-like creature, roughly anywhere between six and nine feet tall, covered in hair uh, that's either black, dark brown, dark reddish. The enormous footprints for these creatures are, are claimed to be as large as 24 inches long and eight inches wide. That's a lot of area for mm -hmm. a foot. Big old, big-ass foot. I wonder which... if that's where it gets its name, Bigfoot. That's probably where it gets it, too. Hmm. Okay. About one-third of all the Bigfoot sightings in North America are in the Pacific Northwest, like I said. And the rest of them are spread all the way through. I mean, people see it in Texas, people see it in New Mexico, people see it in the on the East Coast, and that sort of thing. It makes sense that it would be more heavily populated. I mean, if this kind of thing was real, that it would be a little bit more towards the northern areas. Because, I mean, if it's a, just a big old boy covered in a whole lot of fur down here in the south, that's probably fairly hot. Mm-hmm. Imagine that wouldn't be super comfortable, but that's neat. The concept of an ape-like man is prevalent in Native American legends across the entire North American continent, and even in Native populations around the world. Native American tribes across the continent of North America generally have a similar belief of Sasquatch or a Sasquatch-like being. These creatures all go by different names with respect to differing tribes and customs. Traditionally, Native tribes in the Rockies and northwestern United States view the Bigfoot as a physical being, no different than a human or other animal. However, their respect for animals as wise elder brothers gives them an overwhelming respect for Bigfoot as well, seeing the creature not as a conquest or something to fear, but as a guide, a teacher, or even an extension of their own like psyche and that sort of thing. They see them as like a spirit guide. Hell yeah. In other place, in other parts of the United States, different natives, different Native American tribes view Bigfoot as a being that lives between the physical and the spiritual realms. To these tribes, Bigfoot only makes his appearance or presence known when delivering a message to the beholder. And this kind of appearance can also be a sign of a turn of events or a warning of things to come. Because the creature's closeness to its human relatives, Bigfoot is seen as a special being and is regarded with great and is regarded with great respect and reverence. So these aren't the kind of people who are trying to shoot it and capture it and bring it in. Hell yeah. Native elders view Bigfoot as having greater powers than mankind because these creatures live in the space between human and animal conscience, consciousness. And its presence bring, brings blessings and is generally welcome. So it's kind of like a, a good mothman. Kind of like a good mothman. Or it's like, you know, they used to commune with Bigfoot. And he was part of their culture and he was part of their, you know, he was, he was, he was a big part of their community. And now it's, now it's kind of gone gone away mm. just like all magic is is kind of fading from the world as as we progress closer to a science-based culture 
which is just unfortunate. In total, the Native American tribes of North America have more than 60 different names for Sasquatch. And the word Bigfoot was coined in the late 1950s by the media when um, a man who was hiking discovered large footprints in the mud near Bluff Creek in Northern California. Remember Bluff Creek in Northern California. While the prints were disclosed to be a hoax in the early 21st century, the term stuck and gave rise to the modern belief and interpretation and the quest for Bigfoot. Now, in Japanese culture, they have a hibagon which is like their, um, their equivalent to a Bigfoot or a Himalayan Yeti. The Hibagon is, has a large nose, dark, deep, glaring eyes, and is covered with bristles. Theories about that kind of a particular cryptid are, you know, they range from either a gorilla, a wild man, a deserter from the Japanese culture, kind of like a missing link sort of thing, or like an individual who was, who was ravaged by atomic radiation, that sort of thing. They take the sightings and they kind of fit it to whatever, whatever fear they might have. Okay, yeah, I mean, that makes sense, that that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Especially with something that's so humanoid, it makes sense that you could kind of twist it to fit it with whatever you know you want to say that it goes with um, in order to make it fit the narrative or make more sense to you. Okay, so Bigfoot has become better known and a phenomenon in popular culture, and the sightings have spread throughout North America. Rural areas like in the Great Lakes region and the southeastern United States have been, have been source of numerous reports of Bigfoot sightings. Rural areas around the Great Lakes region and the southeastern United States have been sources of numerous reports of Bigfoot sightings, in addition to the Pacific Northwest. Like I said, it's very prevalent. Um, there's a particular book called The Bigfoot Casebook that was written by Janet and Colin Board, where they document sightings in, from 1918 to 1980, and they list over 1,000 sightings. Now, of course, not all of them are going to then not all of them are going to meet the canon or the you know the measuring rod of legitimacy and that sort of thing, and of course when it comes to scientific when it comes to scientific analysis it's not enough to just have a an eyewitness you have to have you have to have more in order to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot that goes into proving or disproving mm-hmm. um, pretty much anything. Which is why you know basically the scientific community sees it as a cryptid. They see it. As, they see the search for Bigfoot and the study of Bigfoot as a pseudoscience and sort of just like a backwards backroom joke sort of thing. The kind of thing that fits in really well mm-hmm. with like the history channel kind of stuff. Yeah, which is just insane. The debate over the legitimacy of Bigfoot sightings reached its peak in the 1970s, but the Associated Press in 2014 put out a poll and more Americans at that point believed in Bigfoot than they did in the Big Bang Theory. Holy shit, really? Right. In the Himalayan folklore, their Bigfoot is called the Yeti, and it's a monstrous creature, like a snowman. Mm-hmm. The entity would later come to be referred to as the abominable snowman in Western popular culture. The name Yeti and Mete are commonly used by the people, by the indigenous people in the Himalayan area, like, what do they call them? Like the Sherpas. Okay. And it's part of their folk beliefs. That abominable snowman term was coined in 1921. A particular explorer named Charles Howard Berry um, led a 1921 Mount Everest reconnaissance expedition. And he was at 21,000 feet above sea level. And he's found footprints that he believed were probably caused by a large loping gray wolf. But the tracks looked like a barefooted man. Oh, shit. And he said in his in his uh, in his journal and in in his account, he uh, had one of his Sherpa guides volunteered and looked at the tracks and examined them and said that it becomes it comes from the wild man of the snows or a bear man and so or a snowman and that's mm-hmm. where they get that idea and he was the one who decided that he would call it the abominable snowman. 
Um, in the 19th century, the Yeti was part of a pre of pre-Buddhist beliefs in some in several Him- Himalayan people. The Lepka people worshipped a glacier being as a god of the hunt, and also reported that followers of this religion believe that the blood of the wild man could be used in certain mystical ceremonies. And whenever they talked about him or wrote about him or just spoke about him, they depicted him as an ape-like creature who carried a large stone as a weapon and made a whistling, whooshing sound. And that's important because if you watch any of the, like the History Channel stuff or any of the YouTube stuff, mm-hmm. when you're watching all of those people, they make that weird scream noise with their voice to try to call out a Sasquatch Yeah, and that sort of thing. Which is very fun to watch a human do. Yes. Uh, but I feel like if you actually encountered that in the wilderness, that would be traumatizing. It would absolutely be traumatizing. I would go, <laughs> I would abandon everything in my camp and get back in my truck and drive home. <laughs> I mean, abandon all hope. So fast. I'd be like, I don't need any of this shit. Yep, just fuck it. Got my truck keys and I'm gone. I'm, I'm noping out. I mean, we already know how I feel about those sort of things. I know. Um, Back in 1832, a man by the name of James Princep wrote in a journal that he was in Nepal and local guides spotted a tall bipedal creature covered in long, dark hair that fleed from them. And he concluded that it must have been an orangutan. But why is an orangutan in Nepal? And why is, you know, that sort of thing. But that was the, that was the only thing that he could, he could kind of um, correlate yeah. as far as the creature was concerned. As far back as 1899, they were finding footprints in the snow and footprints in uh, in the mud. Um, another another explorer described a large ape-like creature that left these prints, and it wasn't quite like a bear because obviously it's easy to find bear tracks. So um, the 20th, 20th century really saw a great frequency or an increase in frequency in reports. And that's when you have a lot of Westerners decide that they're going to try to go to these far-off regions and climb mountains and explore and that sort of stuff. So like in 1921, a, f- a photographer and, and a member of the Royal Geographical Society wrote that he saw a creature at about 15,000 feet above sea level near the Zimu Glacier. And um, he observed the creature from about 200 to 300 yards away. He quotes as saying, unquestionably, the figure in outline was exactly like a human being walking upright and stopping occasionally to pull up, pull at some dwarf rhododendron bushes. Mm-hmm. And it showed up dark against the snow, and as far as I could make out, wore no clothing. Hmm. About two hours later into this experience, his companions descended the mountain and saw creatures' prints, described as similar in shape to those of a man, but only six to seven, but only six to seven inches long by four to fin- four to four inches wide. So six to seven inches long by four inches wide is actually smaller than a normal human being. Yeah. You know, smaller than our feet, mm-hmm. as far as we're concerned. Because what are you, like a size 10? I'm a 10 and a half. It's um, actually nine. inches. Yeah. So there you go. Western interest in the Yeti, which is what they call it in the Himalayas, peaked dramatically in the 1950s. Eric Shipton was trying to scale Mount Everest in 1951, and he took photographs of a large number of prints in the snow at about 6,000 uh, 6, meters, which is 20,000 feet above sea level. And of course, everybody scrutinizes these, and they say, "Oh, it was probably another." They look at these. They look at these photos, and they look at the. They look at the evidence, and they say, "Well, it could have been, you know, a bear. It could have been a wolf." And then the melted snow distorts it into looking like a larger footprint. Mm-hmm. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, which are the two people to first, uh, the two. Well, he was the first Westerner to uh, scale Mount Everest. Okay, and yeah, he went yeah. with Tenzing Norgay, who was his Sherpa. They reported seeing large footprints while scaling Mount Everest. Hillary would later discount Yeti reports as unreliable. And then 
In his first autobiography, Tenzing Norgay said that he believed that Yeti was a large ape and that he had never seen it, but that his father had seen it twice. But then he wrote a second autobiography. So then in 1960, Sir Edmund Hillary mounted another expedition into the Himalayas between 1960 and 61. And they were trying to collect physical evidence of the Yeti. He went to a particular monastery and borrowed a piece of scalp that was supposedly from a Yeti, and they took, the, they took it back to London for testing. And um, they did a detailed examina- examination of the sample of skin and hair, and it closely resembled a serral bear, which is a form of bear that is indigenous to the Himalayas, but that it was probably made up of the same kind of species, but not exactly. It was very closely related. So whatever this thing was, I mean, it was it was actually a piece of hair from an animal, but they couldn't tell exactly what it was. And then a British mountaineer in 1970 also saw a Yeti moving around on all fours. As you know, in 2007, there was a television producer who went to the Mount Everest region and saw footprints that were 13 inches long, 9.8 inches across, and they made casts of these things. And you can see all of this stuff on our Instagram. You can see it on on YouTube, you can see it on Google. Where yeah, it's it's not hard to find plaster any of casts, these, like the plaster casts of Yeti yeah, stuff. I remember growing up and watching, um, you know, watching old school documentaries like Leonard Nimoy had like a strange and fascinating mm-hmm. uh, TV show sort yeah. of thing, and he would talk about it. You have guys who would go out there and hunt them. They would try to recreate the tracks, and so they would wear special snowshoes that had the Yeti footprints on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been people throughout the entire 20th, 20th century who have come out and said, Oh, I, you know, I, I faked it. I did it. I did it as a hoax. We made suits. You have people who recreate what's going on. You know, they recreate, they'll go back to a place where there was a particular supposed Yeti sighting and they will recreate the entire thing and say, okay, here's a six foot four man and he's out there. And if you see the scale between him and the tree, you can see that whatever it is that we saw was, you know, somewhere between eight and nine feet tall. Yeah. You know, Mm-hmm. And that sort of thing. One of the most um, controversial and yet one of the most famous parts of Bigfoot um, evidence is the Patterson Gimlin film. And this yes. is the worst. Yeah. I'm so excited about this part because I love this. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, we all know what this is. And, uh, and, we'll, and like I said, we'll post it on our Instagram. It's a short motion picture done by a handheld, you know, film camera. And it was shot in. Uh, 1967 in North, Car- in North California near, near Bluff Creek where there were Bigfoot sightings already down this logging road. As the stories go in the early afternoon of Friday, October 20th, 1967, Patterson and Gimlin, these two guys who had been rodeo cowboys and a bunch of other stuff, were um, backpacking with three horses. And they had the camera. They also had rifles and stuff like that. And they had been talking about how they wanted to try to find Bigfoot. And they had made a decision that if they found him, that they would just try to film it and not try to actually shoot him. They were going down this particular um, riverbed. And as they rounded a corner, there was a there was a Bigfoot either sitting or crouching off to the left. And uh, Gimlin, the guy who the guy who was on on his horse, who was trying to cover the other guy, Patterson, was just like shocked. Patterson jumps off his horse. His horse his horse reared, according to his his account. His horse reared up and was kind of scared. So he calmed the calmed the animal down, got down, got his camera, came around the corner and started to try to take film of this uh, Bigfoot. When he first talked about it, 
he said that the that the creature that he saw was anywhere between six feet six inches and seven feet and then later on he tries to say that it was seven feet six inches either way he gets to a point where they where they start to describe him they said it was a large hairy bipedal ape-like figure with short silvery brown or dark reddish hair covering most of its body including prominent breasts Ooh. hello ooh la la the figure in the film which is really cool to watch is generally matches the description of any kind of bigfoot out there he was about 25 patterson was about 25 feet away from the creature at its closest point but the horse reared up he spent about 20 seconds getting himself off the saddle controlling the horse getting to the other side of the horse getting his camera from his saddlebag so he could start to um start to film by the time he got all of that taken care of the 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 bigfoot had started walking away and was about 120 feet away from him he starts running after him and when he gets to about 80 feet away he starts to take video of the thing and it's really shaky really grainy but if you go onto youtube you can find a guy who slowed it down and stabilized the film and for people who may not initially make the connection this film is like the it's the Bigfoot picture. I know anybody who knows what the Bigfoot is has seen this one. It's like the side profile where he's got, um, you know, one arm and one leg behind him and one arm and one leg in front. And it's like a side profile and he's looking – or it's a profile and he's he's looking kind of directly at the camera. Back towards him. Yeah, at, just like back in the midst of all this, you know, wooded area and, you know, debris or whatever's around, like fallen trees and stuff. Um, but I guarantee you, you have seen this Bigfoot photo. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you absolutely have. It's one of the ones. What Patterson talks about is that once he was that close, the figure, whatever the Bigfoot was, looked over his right shoulder at his men, at the men, and had a look of contempt and disgust when he looked back. So they were scared shitless, and they left. Um, but they kept hold of this – they kept hold of this um, – this film and they had it they had it uh developed and they shown it and you know it's just prolific it's everywhere out there it's on multiple sites on youtube you can watch it they were actually the ones who um copyrighted the term bigfoot after this event oh they copyrighted it i did not realize that right um okay so there's another aspect to bigfoot that i want to talk about and that is that um some people think that there is a correlation between ufos and bigfoot and maybe some sort of interdimensional connection. Which makes sense. I see that kind of design of like Bigfoot in the UFO light or with UFOs around him a lot. Exactly. You see that a lot. Okay, so John Keel, who's a UFO UFOologist, and he's a paranormal researcher, and he wrote the Mothman Prophecies book. God, I love Mothman. I know. And Mothman Have we Prophecies done Mothman yet? I don't think so. I was thinking about doing that we one for the next one. Do it. Uh, Mothman's my favorite. Mm-hmm. He proposed this idea of window areas throughout the world connecting our reality with parallel, parallel dimensions. Now, window areas are, sound a lot like thinnies in uh, Stephen King Dark Tower, where the walls between two parallel universes are thin enough so that one, one creature or one person can move in between the other. Which I am all about. I am such a slut for parallel universes, alternate realities... All that kind of stuff. I love this. This is going to be my favorite part of the I'm sure that in every parallel universe, and including this universe, which we're going to consider the Keystone universe, you're a slut in all of them. Accurate. Correct. All right. So, monsters, fairies, demons, and cryptids. 
Keel refers to all of these as ultra-terrestrials, beings capable of crossing dimensions at will and often acting as cosmic pranksters. Ultra-terrestrials is the coolest fucking name right? for cryptids I have ever heard. <laughs> I know, we're going to have to start using that, ultra-terrestrials. Um, there's a guy named Daniel Pinchbeck who says that he's experienced prankster entities cr- cross from his psychedelic realm into the real world. This guy probably does a lot of acid. This dude is just tripping major balls on acid, DMT, whatever it is. And we salute you. I'm not brave enough to do any of that stuff. Plus, I have a full-time actual stand-up job where I can't do those sorts of things. So I'm not going to do it anyway. That's true. All right. When it comes to Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Yeti, or whatever you want to call them, there is often a playfulness or spookiness described in their actions. And that is true. Not all. I mean, well, partially true. You've got people who see them and they don't feel like there's anything, um, they feel like they're very benign or uh, they don't feel threatened at all. And at the same time, you have people who are like, oh my God, he threw a big fucking boulder at me the size of a, the size of a Buick. Or <laughs> he chased me down this, uh, you know, he chased me down this, uh, this logging trail and I ran for my life. Or I heard him crashing around and breaking tree limbs. So it can either be just like a deer that's chilling off in the side or the crazy homeless man under the bridge that wants to attack you with a shiv. That's right. Either one. Tree knocking, eerie screams alert us to their presence until we get close enough where they might offer a glimpse. And before and before you know it, they vanish seemingly into thin air. You know, as one does. Mm-hmm. They, they Keel also talks about how their appearance could be considered another form of prank, embodying a primitive ape-like creature that exudes a noxious odor. That's something else that you see in a lot of the Yeti. Yeah, and that slash Sasquatch sort of tales. And that was something that I was actually going to ask you about. Was um, you see the Sam Elliott movie, The Man Who Killed Hitler, and then the Bigfoot? I haven't watched it yet. So I, it's a very bizarre movie. Um, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we're going to make a whole new thing dedicated just right. to movies. There'll be an episode um, just about this. Movie. But it's it's a very bizarre movie, but it's very emotional and very heartfelt at the same time. But that's one of the things that they do talk about is that, like, it's just Sam Elliott chasing down the Bigfoot to try and kill him uh, because he's just been spreading diseases. But they really emphasize, like, how bad he smells. Like, it's it's almost visible when you see him. He's just got, like, flies and mange and dirt. That's yuck. Yeah, it, it was pretty gross to look at, actually. Um, but like I said, it's, it's a pretty good movie. Um, and especially since you're doing Bigfoot. Um, that's one of the few movies that I can think of that has Bigfoot in it that isn't shitty. So maybe recommend that one. Good idea. So um, their appearance... Oh yeah, the noxious odor. Now sometimes you'll see that um, there's UFO sightings at the same time that there's Sasquatch sightings. And so some people think that there is um, there's a correlation between that. There's a, there's a lot of accounts tying the UFOs to the Bigfoot sightings. Natives describe three crazy bears that descended from the sky in a small moon, leaving them, in the wo- leaving them in the woods before taking off. In another instance, in Cincinnati, Ohio, in 1973, a woman named Rafa Hetfield and her daughter were awakened in the middle of the night to a beam of light extending down from a bulbous umbrella shape in the sky. What the fuck? I know, right? Okay. This sort of thing scares the shit out of me. Tracking the light... To where it landed in the nearby woods, the two noticed a grayish simian creature wandering toward the beam, and before they knew it, both the ape and the craft disappeared. That reminds me of a UFO story that 
uh, one of my roommates told me, actually, my new roommate, she and her mom have seen UFOs more than once, or what they think are UFOs. Are you serious? Yeah, and I was, I, I'm i glad that we're doing this again, because I could see some time if she wants to share those. They're, I mean, they're kind of quick stories, uh, but they're cool nonetheless. Um, they, it was really cool to listen to them. But yeah, they, they talked about one time they saw... You know, they they saw the UFO like light in the sky, and as soon as they passed something that blocked the view of it for a second, it was just gone. It just vanished. Uh, so that that's kind of what it reminded me of, and I thought it was really cool. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> you guys at home could not see Jake's face of bewildered astonishment. No, because we're slack jaw you're telling, wide eyes. You're telling me that I'm one degree separated from someone who's actually seen a UFO. Yeah. Why do we not? I have, told you I've seen. We one. need them. You've seen a UFO? Yeah. I saw one when I was like. 12 you're days. telling me that we've known each other all this time and you've never told me that you you've seen a ufo i told you that i do mean do i even a, know you right now it was a super mild thing like it was really quick and it wasn't that big of a deal but like i told <laughs> you the title of your sex tape oh fuck you <laughs> fuck you You walked right into that one Mm-mm. it was just anyway. over so quickly oh. all right so, in the 1960s, the CIA investigated an alleged simultaneous encounter with Bigfoot and a UFO at Presque Isle State Park in the all-too-appropriately named city of Erie, Pennsylvania. Presque Isle is a peninsula arching over out over Lake Erie to form Presque Isle Bay, and it is one of the state's most visited summer tourist destinations. On July 31st, 1966, four tourists from New York found their car stuck in the sand after spending a day at the beach. One member of the group was sent to call a tow truck while the others remained in the car. At around 10 o'clock, police on patrol stopped to ask if they were all right. After they after they were told that the help was on their way, they went back and they were going to come back and check in about another hour. When the police returned about 35 minutes later, the group said it had witnessed something weird going on up there, pointing to a location in the sky above a wooded area. One of the group's members went to investigate along with the two officers. Only white people. Only white people would think to do that. You're right. Oh, I see something strange in the sky above the wooded area. Let's go check it out. You're absolutely right, though, because my first thought was I want to do it. What is wrong with you people? I just wanna I just want spooky experiences. That's when I decide I you know run what? head first into it. I don't live so far away from home that I can't start walking the opposite <laughs> direction from what this is going to happen. I'm gonna start walking. I'll I'll catch up with you guys. You know you what? You and me are gonna go on an adventure someplace haunted. I'm gonna make sure it is well out of your walking distance. Oh, nothing is out of my walking distance. I have a phone and I can Uber my way the fuck out. Anyway. So what you're saying is you're just a coward. I don't want to be around it. I don't think I want to be around Ugh. it. Part of me says Ugh. no. All right. So um, two women in the group, Betty Clem and Anita Hefley, remained in the car while they waited for everyone's return. Tibbetts and the officers walked roughly 300 yards up the beach before hearing the honking of their car's horn, and so they hurried back to see what happened. The girls were clearly shaken, and they said they witnessed a dull black shape, bigger than a man, big head and shoulders, arm-like appendages, no hands, no visible face, as though it had its back turned in front of their car before it lumbered into the bushes. And when Clem blew the horn, a scratching sound on the hood or the roof of the car was also reported. Of course, they decided that they were going to dismiss the idea and said, oh, it's probably just a raccoon, even though it doesn't sound like a fucking raccoon. I mean, you can tell what a raccoon sounds like. And we all know what a raccoon looks like. Raccoons are adorable. 
Except for those creepy hands. No, those little bitty hands. They're like people hands. They are people hands. That's a trash pandas. Imagine one just like stroking your face. You know, my cat is about the size of a raccoon. Yeah, no, imagine if your cat had human hands. That would be awesome. No! What? Could he play Xbox with me then? No! Because that would be fucking awesome. He would open your fridge and he would destroy all the food that you own. He doesn't want human food. So cute. Okay, I would make him get a job. Tech support. (laughs) Can't talk. That motherfucker needs to start paying rent around here. Okay, the UFO was described as an angular craft emitting red and orange lights before descending down to the beach where it radiated a beam of white light that tracked something into the woods. But eventually it took off at an incredible speed to the north shortly after the women encountered the humanoid figure. In the early hours of the following morning, officers patrolled the area where the craft had allegedly landed. The report says they know of two unusual triangular marks in the area coinciding with the craft's landing zone, which is very indicative of a lot of other UFO sightings. The officer writing the report said, I have no reasonable explanation for the UFO and described the witnesses as credible. Investigation of the case was eventually abandoned, remaining unsolved to this day. But as all the best ones are, of course, as all the best ones are. So there is a correlation. And this isn't just the one. The problem with the problem with this topic wasn't that I couldn't find enough information. It's that there's so much information that I literally had to pick and choose. So I didn't go on and on for two hours. Yeah, it, it can be hard to figure out like what's important enough and what's different enough from the other information that it's actually mm-hmm. useful <laughs> but no you did a good job i think i feel like uh and this is just the humble opinion of everyone's favorite co-host of this podcast um that you did a you did a good job you did you did it justice thanks bud you're welcome okay that's it for me and the sasquatch wow the sasquatch sasquatch <laughs> so cute um Okay, well, then I suppose that means it's my turn. Yeah, it's your turn. Anyway, so I am going to take you all on a journey down to a little town called Adams, Tennessee. Do you know what waits for us in Adams, Tennessee? The, I'm not going to say it because it's dark. I'm guessing it's something terrible and ominous. It's the Bell Witch. Jesus Christ. The Bell Witch. Sounds um, horrible. If anybody has seen... Uh, the Blair Witch Project or 2016's Blair Witch. That, that is what good. it's based on. And we watched it. 2016's Blair, Blair Witch was fucking awesome. <laughs> that I was liked a good that one. movie a lot. That got and me good. It did a lot of justice for uh, the general idea of the Bell Witch um, as much as it can within the confines of the Blair Witch you know, universe. Um, there was also Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2, which was a sequel to the original Blair Witch Project. Uh, and we don't talk about that one. So, yeah, that whopping 14% on Rotten Tomatoes can go fuck itself. <laughs> but anyway, we're not talking about the Blair Witch, because that's going to be for the other one. Um, what we are talking about is the legend of the Bell Witch Haunting, which, as I said, originated in Adams, Tennessee, uh, with the earliest reports of the Bell Witch coming from the family of farmer John Bell Sr., and this was all the way back in 1817. Which has been around for a while. Exactly. Um, so the family's reports of the Bell Witch describe the entity as a powerful, shape-shifting being oh uh, who was normally invisible but had the voice of a woman as well as the ability to control the environment, move at superhuman speed or be in multiple loca- locations at once, and even clairvoyance. 
as you said that, I saw that as like a character stat sheet in D&D. That was exactly kind of how I was picturing it as I was going through like, this kind of stuff. That's a really powerful entity right there. Right? That is, that is, an, that is like a dungeon. That is an end of the dungeon sort of uh, enemy. That, yeah, definitely not a level one boss. you got to level that shit up before you, before you go after oh, that. Yeah. You need run, to have a full run party. Run them side quests. You've got to have a full party. I talk to do. a lot of NPCs, pull up a lot of bullshit <laughs> side quests in order to level up before you go after the Bell Witch. Exactly. Yep. You gotta do that farming, man. I really, I really, really wanted to play The Witcher. I really did, and I bought The Witcher three, and you know, spent like, I don't know, three hours watching watching the ninety four gigs of update download mm. onto my Xbox One, and I tried to play that game for about I don't know maybe an hour, and I'm like, this is just Skyrim all over again. <laughs> And I couldn't do it. Like wow, I don't really? have. It, you got pay. Witcher three. I don't have the. I don't have the. I'm. I'm too old now, to start over, Damn. with another game that is going to engross my life, where I have to get Gerald or, Geralt of Rivia to get up to a level whatever whatever to beat a Griffin or some bullshit like that. I don't have <laughs> it. I don't have. The, I don't have the patience anymore. You're on borrowed time at this. I point, am on borrowed man. time. <laughs> Not getting any younger. Yeah, I've thought about buying. Um, the Witcher, but nah, I have tattoos to spend my money on instead. You can have it. I'm pretty sure that it I don't have an Xbox. Oh, you don't? No, because I'm somebody that's cool. If you say so. Shut up. Anyway, so back to the Bell Witch. This powerful entity um, is capable of basically just fucking your shit right up. Um, now, the the happenings of the Bell Witch started small. Um it was mostly just kind of little things that barely hinted at malice. Um, I mean, obviously, you and me would probably recognize this beginning stages better than, you know, these people did. Because, obviously, um, 1817 is a little bit before our podcast came out. Mm-hmm. So she started out with uh, rattling chains, banging on walls, and slamming doors. So kind of like standard spooky shit. Um but as the family tried to ignore these things, it grew increasingly more frustrated, um, showing a lot of similar symptoms of an angry ghost or even a demon. Um, started pulling sheets off beds, um, scratching the family members. Uh, it threw furniture a couple times. It had stabbed some of the family members with needles. What? All of this was accompanied by the witch's <laughs> laughter at their discomfort. Um, because obviously it's feeding off of their fear. Mm-hmm. And as, yes, you, yes, as yes. you get more, as you get more afraid, as the fear grows, then it grows in its power. Exactly. It was John Bell, the father, who got a lot of the the direction of this. But the one who got it the worst was John's daughter Betsy. It's always a little girl. It's always a little girl. How old was she? I don't remember. Okay, I'm just wondering. Yeah, I she was youngish, but not like a child. Mm-hmm. Um, Kind of like young teen. Preteen. Yeah. So Betsy was slapped, scratched, and hit so frequently that her body basically started becoming covered in bruises. This sounds a lot like the Enfield poltergeist. It kind of does, yeah. But it got so bad that eventually her father was forced to stop ignoring the issue um, and decided to share the information and get help. So John sought the help of his friends um, that were in a town committee they were all able to come together, go to the house, and then able to speak to the witch. Because as I said, she she was actually very vocal, um, and she was not shy about talking to people, which is kind of horrifying. Um, but they were able to speak to the witch, who identified herself as the spirit of somebody that John already knew. 
a woman named Kate Batts, who was an ex-neighbor of the Bells who hated John as she believed she was cheated in a land purchase from him. Um, and it is said um, that on her deathbed, she stated that she would haunt the Bell family as long as she could. I didn't get too many details on this, but pretty much everything I saw basically said she felt like she was cheated out of a deal or she felt like she got wronged out of it. So it kind of seems like maybe she just overreacted a little bit and then ended up just saying, all right, fine, fuck you guys, and cursing a whole family. So she curses the whole family and then a, and then a witch starts to manifest itself? So the the idea of the witch is the spirit of Kate. Um, so she she passes away... And then she actually does go and haunt the family okay. and just gains so much power that it becomes on the level of what they would consider a witch at the time. And she was she was a spiritual woman along the lines of a witch when she was alive. Oh my god. So basically they pissed off a witch who then came back as a lich, um, which we all know is very bad. And I did not expect this segment to have so many D&D references. And yet here we are. But here we are. And yet here we are in the thing we're most comfortable about. Because you said lich. And my face lit I know. up. <laughs> you know, I was like, eyes hang wide, on a second. Grin, hang on a second. Yep. I, I, <laughs> I knew that would land. You're scratching that bone of mine where I'm like, very I, excited about this. I know. I did not think about that until just now. All right. So anyway, um, so during the time of the hauntings, like I said, the bell witch usually remained invisible, um, but was frequently heard and felt um, even by guests. Um, she was described to have spoken usually in a low tone um, and a lot of times in a song-like voice, so basically like a low singing. Um, but when she was upset, that would drastically change to a high-pitched or painful uh, loud speak or screaming. What I don't understand is why people stay in houses like this. Because I would move my children out of this house and then burn this house to the fucking ground. Well, the problem with the Bell family was they moved to this location. They built this house. Like, this was all they had. They, they, It's not like, you know, a place now where, like, you go into a place and it's haunted. Okay, well, I put that on the market. Now I'm just going to go live in a new residential neighborhood. Mm. Like, mm. they were out on a farm in a house that they built this in is like 1817. The I'm done. I'm done. I, I know. I know your opinions on this. I don't care I what the bank feelings. says. I don't care that we're defaulting on a loan. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes it just don't be like that. Obviously not. So, like I said, she would, she would usually speak in, like, a low voice or a sing-song voice. Um, but then when she got upset, she would speak or scream very loudly. Oh, Jesus. So to give you an idea, the, the majority of what happened with this was between 1817 and 1820. So within a span of three years, it escalated from the point of chains rattling and door slamming to an entity that is actively harming you and your daughter and screaming at you and like oh talking to you. But after three long years of tormenting John and his family, Kate was finally able to take her revenge on the man she felt wronged her. In 1820, this was October 19th, if I remember correctly, uh, John woke up later than usual and seemed to have come down with a strange illness. He was in some kind of uh, haze or like a stupor. His son rushed, you know, his son noticed this and rushed over to the medicine cabinet. But when he opened the medicine cabinet, he was surprised to see that everything but one unknown vial was gone. Oh, God. 
none of the family had seen this vial before or knew what the contents were. Um, and they elected to just go ahead and call the doctor to come and have a look at John and try and figure out what this this liquid was. So when the doctor arrived and started examining John and trying to figure out what was going on, basically the story says that the witch started taunting them and she sang about how she got rid of all the medicine and dosed John with this poisonous liquid in his sleep, oh my God. which caused the doctor to get that liquid. And because these people were bastards, uh, they tested the liquid on the house cat oh God. who really? died immediately. <laughs> yeah. The cat had to die. Yeah. The cat had to die. That's some fucked up bullshit. Because they have this thing and they're like, well, the witch says it's poisonous. Let's see if it is. And they gave it to the cat and the cat fucking died. Like it dropped dead in moments. So they were like, okay, shit, I guess this witch actually did poison him. Unfortunately, though, because they didn't know what kind of poison it was and they didn't like nothing they were doing worked. There was nothing the doctors could do. So like I said, this was October 19th, and on December 20th, only about two months afterwards, um, or after the witch like taunted them and poisoned John, um, John Bell died. I would obviously think so, yeah. Yeah, so in the span of two months there, he died. Um, after he died, though, the witch, Kate, fell silent, um, basically until like they had the funeral for John. Um so closer to the end of the funeral, like pretty much right as it ended, like the main portion of it, mm -hmm. um, the grave had been filled. And then it said that Kate started to laugh. Like you just hear her voice laughing. Um, and she sang nonstop until every single person who attended that funeral was gone from the area. Shortly after the funeral, this is in the beginning of 1821, mm -hmm. Kate reappeared to tell them that she would be returning in seven years. And as the story goes, she just stopped from there. Like, no other harm came to the family, no voices or anything. Until, seven years later, she did appear to John Bell Jr. in his home. And this part was really weird to me. I saw this on a couple different sites. But, I mean, it just, you'll, you'll see. She appeared to John Bell Jr. in his home and told him a prophecy of horrors to come, including visions of the Civil War, World War I, and World War II, among other things. Oh my god. Um, and then promised John Jr. that in 107 years, she would return again and continue her hauntings. Um, and as of now, which is past that time period, um, it's often reported that the area is still haunted, um, obviously to a much lesser extent because people don't really live in that kind of area and it's not, you know, directly the Bell family anymore, mm -hmm. but you can still find, you know, like weird feelings in some of the locations or things moving around, um, you know, just kind of a general bad vibe with a lot of it. And I do have a really neat, basically long fun fact, um, that I was very excited to hear about because I had forgotten that it was this particular story. Um, so, this particular entity had a run-in with one of America's worst presidents before he even became a president. The General Andrew Jackson. Oh my god. Yeah, the man... <laughs> responsible for the Trail of Tears. The man responsible for the Trail of Tears, the man who was also pretty well-renowned for being just a badass motherfucker... Like, but not in the good way. I mean, not in a good way. Not but like, like in the Samuel L. Jackson way. No, but... More like in the Heinrich Himmler or, uh, you know, Adolf Hitler kind of way. Exactly. But, I mean, this was a man who at the time was revered for being basically just 
tough as fuck like just a badass you know i'm constantly got into duels and was just like he was just unfuckwithable mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. so the story of jackson's interaction with the bell witch goes that apparently some of john bell's children his sons fought under andrew jackson so because of them telling stories of like their upbringing and how this kind of thing happened um andrew jackson got wind of this and he was so intrigued by this that he got the sons of john bell and a group of basically friends and other soldiers to come with him to the Bell family house in the hopes of hearing or seeing some sort of haunted activity. So the stories say that upon arrival, they were all obviously in horse-drawn wagons. Mm -hmm. Um, As they were going, they got onto the property, and then the wagons just stopped. Um, So obviously, you know, they were whipping at the horses and trying to get them to go. Um, The horses would pull and pull, and this wagon would not move it was right. just stuck in place and this this was on like a flat plain area you know there wasn't like big dips or you know any way that it could have just been caught right and they, um, weren't, they weren't stuck in the mud or anything like that right right um so you know jackson ordered the men to get off the wagon and then you know move some of the the gear off and then try and push it um but i mean nothing they did worked they they tried constantly to no avail um the men pushed the wagons while the horses pulled and it just it wouldn't move mm-hmm. after seeing all of this general jackson had exclaimed by the eternal boys it is the witch and then from the bushes kind of all around where they were at there was a raspy sing-songy voice saying all right general, all right, general let the wagon let move the wagon on move i will on. see you I'll again see you tonight again. uh and then the wagon moved again it just was able to go. Um, so Jackson and his men, shocked and horrified, moved into their places on the property. So during the night that this, I mean, this is the first night that they got there after this, you know, weird as fuck wagon experience. They were all laying in bed, you know, just kind of around the house. And during that night, General Jackson and his men um, were there and kind of listening and keeping an eye on things, but also trying to sleep. Uh, that night, Betsy Bell, the daughter that was getting it worse mm-hmm. uh, than anyone else, stayed up all night screaming in pain from the abuse from the witch. Jesus Christ. Yeah, this was like one of Shepherd the worst of nights that she had ever had. So, And during the time that she was you know, up screaming, General Jackson's covers were ripped off of his bed repeatedly. Um, and his he and his entire company felt as though there was an entity that was hitting them, pulling their hair, and slapping them throughout the night. Um, this was so bad and so frequent that they, I mean, they just couldn't do anything about it, which caused General Jackson and his men to evacuate the property basically as fast as possible the hmm. next morning. And I mean, th- this was Andrew Jackson, and he was later quoted as saying. I'd rather fight the British in New Orleans than have to fight the Bell Witch. Oh, damn. Yeah. I love it. Like, something that just horrified that kind of, you know, piece of shit guy, but, like, just badass who didn't really give a fuck about anything. Yeah. But because of... uh, And that's that's basically the end of, of that story. But I was looking into, you know, the Bell Witch and kind of that that area of town... Um, and I found out that it actually is still really popular, especially around the time that things like the Blair Witch Project came out. Mm-hmm. Um, it gained a lot more notoriety. But there is a sign. Oh, I saw it. It looks like a historical marker. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it basically is. It's just a big historical marker in Adams um, that says, and I'm gonna. I have a picture of the sign. I'm just gonna go ahead and read it to you. Uh, it says Bell Witch. Uh, to the north was the farm of John Bell. 
an early prominent settler from North Carolina. According to legend, his family was harried during the early 19th century by the famous Bell Witch. She kept the household in turmoil, assaulted Bell, and drove off Betsy Bell's suitors. Even Andrew Jackson, who came to investigate, retreated to Nashville after his coach wheel stopped mysteriously. Many visitors to the house saw the furniture crash about them and heard her shriek, sing, and curse. It's fucking hardcore, right? And this is like a big historical plaque marker in town. You know, so they're they're even acknowledging it. They, there's very few entities and stories like this that actually have that kind of impact, so much so that a, a whole town will dedicate a sign to this and kind of embrace the idea of that. Now, I just think it's it's such a fascinating story, and I really like to see these kinds of interesting stories get things like the Blair Witch Project and Blair Witch made out of them. Something that takes that idea and actually does it justice and shows, mm-hmm. you know, kind of what it would be like now if people were in, you know, the the height of that. I just, I really like the Bell Witch. I, I have had this one on the list for a while. And once we got into like, okay, this is going to be a long hiatus, I knew I, I wanted to come in with something kind of interesting um, and unique. So I'm glad I did the Bell Witch. But that's her. That's Kate Batts. God, it's fucking crazy. It's wild, right? I can't imagine there wasn't anything they could do to appease her. They, There's no way to cleanse the house. I mean, it was it was a curse from a witch. Yeah, I guess there's no way around that. Yeah. That's crazy. It is crazy. No way but to I, lift the curse, I guess. Nope. And, you know, luckily it didn't, you know, once John Sr. died, it didn't get any worse. Because I was reading through this and I was expecting it to be like, you know... Then she went and killed Betsy or something, but it seemed like after John died, it was basically just like that one more appearance to say, hey, here's a whole bunch of wars coming up that are going to destroy the entirety of the globe um, and America, and then like, all right, I'm just going to dip for another 100 years until I can come back up and inspire some cool movies and fuck around with some tourists. That's crazy. I love that story. I do too. You did not disappoint. Thank you, nor did you. Thanks, bud. All right, well... We're so glad to be back. I'm. I cannot tell you guys how excited I am to actually be doing stuff again, and not only to have this podcast back, but to have the idea for the next podcast. Mm-hmm. And then I'm even talking with one of my other friends and doing something else. So I'm trying to keep myself as as busy with podcast stuff as I can. Yes, we both need meaning <laughs> but, in our life, don't we? Absolutely. All if right. I don't create, I am nothing. There you go. Exactly. All right, well, I think that's pretty much it, right? That's all I have to say for now, up until, uh, you know, we will keep you guys, like I said, we'll keep you guys updated on the status of this podcast and the next one. All right, well, we hope you've enjoyed our topics, and from my co-host Dylan, just want to say thank you for listening. This is Jake, and we hope we've left you too scared to sleep. Blow me, Dylan. Blow me away with your topic. God. (laughs) Every time that we spend more than 10 minutes together, I feel myself aging at twice the regular speed. Maybe you'll feel like a responsible adult by the end of the hour. Go fuck yourself. Just saying. Go fuck yourself. Okay.